Paul in this passage is being bold and blunt. The book of Galatians is probably most certainly Paul's most contentious book. In this passage, he's calling out, really in this entire book, he calls out false brothers. Not true brothers, but false brothers who want to, as he puts it, spy out the freedom that Paul and his companions have and those that he preached the gospel to. And they want to bring Paul and those with him into their enslaving traditions. They're false brothers. And Paul was having none of it. Um, You know, it's not a good quality to be a brawler, to be someone who's ready to fight at the drop of a hat, you know, just ready to throw down with anybody. Um, But also, it's equally wrong, and maybe even more wrong, and certainly cowardly, to never be ready to fight for what really matters. And Paul is ready to fight for what matters in this book. Paul is, you might call him, the ultimate freedom fighter. Not the freedom that a sovereign nation can grant, but the freedom that only a sovereign God can grant. Paul is a warrior for the freedom the gospel alone gives. Freedom from sin, freedom from the wrath of God that our sins deserve, and freedom from the heavy burden of trying to keep rules. Paul loved the gospel that brought this freedom. He eventually died spreading it. He lived his entire life and then eventually died spreading it as far as he could. Paul's first letter is this letter, the book book of Galatians. His last letter is is the book of 2 Timothy. Galatians was written about 49 to 50 A.D., And 2 Timothy was written probably about 66 or 67 AD, around there. And every letter in between there, he wrote 13 altogether, Holy Spirit-inspired letters that are collected for us in the scriptures. And every letter that Paul wrote, he has one overarching theme, and it's the gospel. Paul loved the gospel. Paul was passionate about the gospel. It was all about the gospel. That was the main thrust of of his ministry, And that was his main message. For Paul, the gospel was not a message of initiation that people would move on from. But it was not the ABCs of the Christian life, but it was the A to Z. It was the beginning and the end. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace that comes to sinners through Jesus Christ. Paul sums up his entire message and ministry in statements like this. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24 Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So if you want to get connected to the power of God, you need to get connected to the gospel. If you want to stay connected to the power of God, you need to stay connected to the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. Near the end of his life, just before Paul is going to have his head chopped off by the Romans, After a life of loving, spreading, and defending the gospel, Paul writes this, 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
So Paul's ministry to the end was all about the gospel, the gospel that brings freedom. He proclaimed the gospel everywhere he went, and after he planted and established churches and moved on, he would write letters to those churches he planted and established, and he'd write letters to defend the gospel, to clarify the gospel, to expose enemies of the gospel. In Philippians 1.7, Paul describes his ministry as one of defending and confirming the gospel. So whether it was fighting against the Gnostics, the Gnostics were an early heretical group that they believed in a kind of special knowledge and getting closer to God through this special kind of knowledge and mystical experiences, whether it was the the Gnostics or the ascetics who emphasized harsh treatment and abuse of the body in order to attain holiness, or the Judaizers who emphasized obedience to the law, Paul fiercely defended the gospel over and over and over again. And his message was essentially this, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient to save from first to last, from beginning to end. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He didn't preach a a Jesus and kind of message, but Jesus Christ alone. Paul preached that Jesus was the God-man who lived a perfect life, who died to exhaustively atone for our sins, who rose victoriously, who sits at the right hand of God the Father now, defeating enemies and is eager to return. This is who Jesus preached. Not a little... This who Paul preached, excuse me. Jesus through Paul, I suppose. Paul did not preach a little Jesus we can stick in our back pocket and kind of give us warm fuzzies every once in a while. He preached a powerful, saving Lord... Jesus Christ. All that Jesus is and all that he has done, Paul would say, is to be received as a gift through empty-handed faith. We don't bring Jesus anything to add to him. We receive him and all he's done with the empty hands of faith. Jesus plus nothing. There's a book, I can't remember the guy's name, Tolly and Chavidian, I think, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Through Jesus alone. Through Jesus alone. You are free from the need to climb a mystical ladder to get closer to God because you couldn't be brought any closer to God since Jesus himself brings you right to God. Through Jesus alone, you don't need to beat yourself and treat yourself harshly to grow in holiness through fasting and all sorts of other silly and strange things. Not that fasting silly, but the things that the ascetics did were silly. You don't need to do those things to grow in holiness because Christ himself is your holiness. Through Christ alone... You are free from living in meticulous obedience to rules in order to be accepted by God because Jesus Christ alone is your perfect obedience and your law keeper. He's done it perfectly. How can you add to it? How can you add to what Jesus has done? You can't. This, of course, is the context of the book of Galatians. Paul wants the Galatians to remember 
The gospel is the message of forgiveness, acceptance, and freedom in Christ apart from keeping rules. Paul had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles or the non-Jews, telling them of full forgiveness and acceptance without keeping the law, and people were getting saved. Right? They were, they were responding. The same spirit that fell on Peter, that fell on John, that fell on James, that fell on the 120 in the upper room, the same spirit that fell on Paul, the same spirit that would fall on Jewish converts, were falling on, was falling on Gentiles. God was showing his approval of Paul's message by pouring out his spirit on these non-Jewish people who were responding to the gospel. God was doing this without them being circumcised or adhering to the law of Moses. In other words, they weren't required to become Jews or, or enter into Judaism, but biblical faith was being dressed up in all cultures, which is exactly what Jesus intended. Listen to, listen to what Paul preached. This is just a sample of the message he preached in Acts 13. To Gentiles, and he preaches to Jewish people as well, Jew and Gentile alike. He said this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul would preach this message, and city after city after city, Not that there wasn't resistance, there certainly was, but people were responding. Think of how revolutionary this was. Just through believing? Just believing? Nothing more? Paul could say to the worst criminal, if you simply believe in Christ, you are free, and your future could not be brighter. Paul could say to the lowest slave girl, believe in Christ and you are free in the most important way. Paul could say to those who were previously enemies of God, believe in Christ and you, right this second, right now, are 100% accepted by God and welcomed as his friends through simple faith in Christ. Not believe and get your act together, At all, through simple faith in Jesus. People were hearing this message, Jew and Gentile alike, the spirit was falling, and joy was spreading. You better believe joy was spreading. This is what Paul was preaching for 14 years, but it wasn't without opposition. And the primary opposition Paul got was from Jews. Those who were living, those who were adherents of the law of Moses, those who were in the Judaistic system of religion, which brings us to Galatians 2. Here in Galatians 2, 1 to 10, Paul explains and unfolds for us events that took place in Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read any of Acts 15 this morning. Um, But I'd encourage you just to go back and look at some of the context this week, today, later, sometime this week. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, encouraging the believers with what God is doing among the Gentiles. People are excited, 
right? There's, there's excitement, there's joy. And then there were some Jewish men who came from Judea. Judea was the, the area that Jerusalem was in. Some men came from Judea and began to stir up trouble. And their message was this. Of course you need to believe in Jesus. And you need to be circumcised. And you need to keep the law of Moses. And all of a sudden, this message of freedom through simple faith in Christ, acceptance with God, freedom began to feel heavy and all sorts of strings seemed to be attached. Circumcision, the actual operation for boys and men, observing the law of Moses, observing days and weeks and months and years. And this other message, not the gospel, this other message, rather than freeing people, would actually bring people into slavery. And so Paul and Barnabas get into a large dissension. I love the way Acts 15 puts it. There was no small debate and dissension. It was big. Paul and Barnabas get into a large Debate and dissension with these men. And what followed was a trip to Jerusalem for what is the first church council, which Paul addresses here in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. What's at stake is huge. What's at stake is nothing small or insignificant. What's at stake is the gospel. And thankfully, our text shows us the outcome. What we see in this passage is four things. The gospel is revealed. The gospel is preserved. The gospel is affirmed. And the gospel bearing fruit. So I just want to take those one at a time. In this text, the gospel first revealed. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus come to Jerusalem. And Paul lays out the gospel to Peter John and James and the church elders there. He lays out the gospel. He's been preaching for years now, 14 years he's been preaching this gospel. And we see something stunning in verse 3. It may, you may just read past this, or may, your eyes may glaze over. It might just go over your head, but this is really important. Verse 3 says this. Paul it says he set before them the gospel in verse 2. Verse 3 says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. He was not a Jewish person. He was a Gentile. He was someone who who responded to the gospel message as a non-Jew. Perhaps Paul brought Titus as a test case for the gospel he preached. In verse 1, Paul says that he was with Barnabas and took Titus along with him. And Paul perhaps brought Titus along to show them this is a real Gentile who has had a real encounter with the real grace of God and who has been really changed. Are you going to make him be circumcised? Really? The apostles in Jerusalem, whose primary ministry was to the Jewish people, hear Paul's message. They see Titus and see no need to compel him to add anything to what Christ has done by circumcising him. So circumcision was an outward sign for Jewish people that one belonged completely to God, that they were part of the covenant community of God. But now that Christ has come, he has 
fully satisfied all of the Old Testament requirements of the law, not just for himself and not just for the Father, but on behalf of everyone who trusts in him. And rather than the physical outward sign of circumcision, now God performs the inward operation of heart circumcision by giving us new hearts. The outward sign of circumcision could not change the heart. We need new hearts, and that's exactly what God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, the apostles in Jerusalem, they see no need to add anything to the gospel Titus received. Titus, on the basis of his faith in Christ alone, is completely accepted and acceptable to God. He is totally clean. He is fully accepted on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ alone. Titus is free from the need to supplement a single thing to Christ's completed work. And so are we. So are we. We don't need to add a single thing to what Christ has done. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with the truth that at this very moment, the God of heaven, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the one, the author of all of history, right? Who knows the end from the beginning because he declared the end from the beginning. This God at this very moment accepts me based completely on what someone else has done, namely what Jesus has done. It's stunning. You can see why as this message swept through Asia Minor, where the churches of Galatia were and the Mediterranean area, it was changing everything. You can see why this message, which was recovered in the 1500s during the time of the Reformation, swept through Europe like wildfire. Are you seeking to get God's attention based on who you are or what you have done or what you do? Do you say things like or think things like, I'm not so bad, I think I'm a pretty good person, or I try to help people, I try to be a good person, I try to do good things, I I read my Bible, I do my devotions, I pray, I do good things, I don't drink or watch bad movies or whatever else you might put in there. If you relate to God on this footing, what I just described, Paul would say you are in slavery. You're in slavery. And he wants you to be freed by the gospel. These may be good things, but you and I can never earn our acceptance or freedom or peace with God based on what we do. Martin Luther, before he was converted, he was a Catholic monk. And he was uh, a Catholic monk who who was probably the most meticulous, obedient monk, at least outwardly. Uh, He describes himself or describes his life in this way, describes his thinking in this way. He says, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it would have been me. 
All of my brothers, he says, will testify to that. For if I had gone on much longer, I simply would have killed myself keeping vigils and praying and reading and working. All this brought was enslavement. And the peace that Luther sought with God, and he did seek it, it eluded him. Couldn't find it. It wasn't found there. It wasn't found in what he was doing. Heaven is opened. Freedom is offered. Peace is given through Christ alone. Through Jesus Christ alone, apart from keeping the law. The leaders in Jerusalem, they saw Titus. They saw a non-Jew who had responded to the gospel, who had received the Holy Spirit, Paul attested to this, and on the basis of his faith alone, they said, he's clean. He's acceptable. He is, he is part of God's community. He is included now. He doesn't need to be circumcised. He doesn't need to become part of the Judaistic religion. Can you imagine you and I singing, Jesus almost paid it all? Mostly, I, mostly all I owe to him. No. We sing Jesus, we sing joyfully. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. In this one simple phrase where, where, where Paul says, Titus came with us, he was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, we see powerfully the gospel revealed. Next in this passage, we see the gospel preserved. The gospel is revealed in Titus, not being compelled to be circumcised. It's preserved through Paul's dogged resistance to the false teachers. And it is a dogged resistance. This is not a matter of insignificant differences. I think we covered this maybe two weeks ago. But Paul said back in chapter one, these false teachers are accursed. Which means they are eternally condemned without any hope of redemption. These false teachers that are pushing this other message, what are they doing? They're bringing people into slavery. They're leading people away from the grace of God. They are accursed. And those who are sucked into it, those who are deceived by this message, and those who give into it and live under this message, they too are accursed. Paul says, if you are, say you're going to live according to the law, you better keep it perfectly because Jesus will be of no benefit to you. So this is not a small insignificant matter. Paul is not arguing over semantics. You say tomato, I say tomato, etc. He's not doing that. This is Massively important. A Jesus and message leads people to hell. Not just the teachers of this message, but those who believe it. The truth of the gospel was at stake. And because the gospel is at stake, it's a matter of truth and error. It's a matter of freedom and slavery. And we see this in verses 4 And five, here's what Paul says. Yet because of false brothers, 
secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul says, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of gospel, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul was passionate about the truth of the gospel being preserved, not just for himself, not just for the, you know, Paul, Peter and James and those who were in Jerusalem, but for those who were still far from Christ. He wanted the gospel to be preserved for those who had not yet received it. In these verses, we see that there were some false brothers. They were not true brothers. They were false brothers who were not just off a bit. They were false brothers with an agenda to bring Christians who were living in joy and freedom in Christ into slavery. I can imagine this has got to be one of the most difficult part. was one of the most difficult parts of Paul's ministry often having to refute people who named the name of Jesus but weren't true brothers. They were false brothers. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. These super apostles that were, that were deceiving the, the people at Corinth, Paul calls them false apostles. They were no doubt naming the name of Christ outwardly, but they were preaching another message. I couldn't imagine... Oftentimes, Paul, as he goes through his, the, the litany of things he's gone through, how many times he got beaten and put in prison and shipwrecked at sea, in that list, he says, often in danger from false brothers. Paul is militant in his resistance, though. He says these false brothers, they, I think the, the new, new uh, NIV says they... Um, infiltrated our ranks in order to bring us into slavery and draw us into the slavery of their traditions. Paul says, to them, we did not yield even for a moment. Not even for a second. Look at the reason Paul gives. The reason Paul gives for his unyielding resistance to these false teachers was so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This addition to the gospel threatens it being lost. I mean, imagine if Paul had given in to these false brothers. We wouldn't know anything about Paul. I mean, certainly God would have done his work through somebody else, but we wouldn't even know who Paul was. Well, we might know him as a false teacher, I suppose. I don't know. But we certainly wouldn't know Paul as the eminent apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world. Notice the two words at the end of the sentence. He's, Paul, at, the, at the end of the sentence, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, not period, but for you. Paul's not interested simply in preserving the gospel for himself or for the believers in Jerusalem. But he says to these beloved believers that he loves so dearly, he says that it might be preserved for you. This is our privilege too. You and I have the privilege of preserving the truth, not in the same way that Paul does. Paul was an an apostle who preserved the truth by writing it in scripture for us. But we have the privilege of preserving the truth for those 
who are not yet here. Those who are not yet Christian, those who are still far from God as we one time, at one time were. So Paul, in this passage, preserves the gospel. Next, we see the gospel affirmed. The truth of the gospel Paul preached was affirmed by the other apostles. There, there are not, there's not two gospels. It's not like there's the gospel, there's, there's a different gospel for Jewish people than there is for Gentile people. There is one gospel. It may be spoken differently, right? It might be communicated differently. Like you, would communi- like you want to know your audience and who you're talking to, you want to communicate appropriately to them. Right? You, you talk differently to Muslims than you would to Jewish people, than you would to Buddhists, than you would to atheists. But it's the same gospel that centers on the finished work of Jesus, that centers on the need, the one need we have to respond, or the one way we need to respond, and that is through repentance and faith. Paul says in verse 6, those who were influential... They added nothing to me. Paul, James, Peter, they didn't add anything to Paul. Paul brought, he laid out the gospel before them. He showed them Titus. They didn't require Titus or didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. They heard the gospel Paul preached, and they didn't have a single thing to add. Not one thing. Rather, they affirmed the gospel Paul preached. Notice three things in verses 7 and 9. First, in verse 7, it says, these leaders, Peter, James, and John, they saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jewish people. Just as Peter was the primary gospel spokesman to Jewish people, Paul was the primary gospel spokesman to non-Jewish people. Paul is being put on equal footing with the Apostle Peter here. They're affirming the message he preaches. Second, notice in verse 8, it says that the apostles perceived the the grace given to Paul. They heard all that Paul was doing, how God was using Paul. They saw how God was powerfully working through him. Paul told them what God was doing they saw Titus as a real, live example of a Gentile who was converted to Christ. Acts 15.4 says, Paul and Barnabas, on arriving to Jerusalem, they declared all that God had done with them. It was obvious. They perceived that God certainly was doing something powerful in Paul's life and through Paul. And they affirmed the gospel he preached, the gospel of free grace in Christ. And finally, notice in verse 9, Paul says, James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is Peter, and John, um, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Barnabas and Paul were recognized as co-workers, as co-workers with the apostles in Jerusalem. The gospel Paul preached needed nothing added to it, not a single thing. The gospel preached by the the, the apostles in Jerusalem was the same as Paul's message of freedom. You are free in Christ right now by simple faith and not by adherence to the law 
or following rules at all. The false brothers had not been sent by the apostles in Jerusalem. I think earlier in the text when Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to make sure I wasn't running in vain. When these, believers, when these false brothers came from Judea, perhaps Paul thought that in the back of his mind they were sent by Peter, James, John, or perhaps these false brothers said they were sent by Peter, James, and John, but these apostles in Jerusalem affirm Paul's message and resist and contradict the false message of these false brothers. Paul was not preaching or running in vain. The gospel of freedom is revealed, preserved, and affirmed. And finally, the gospel is bearing fruit in this passage. And that's what the the gospel bears fruit. You know, whenever we talk about... um, Um, The gospel is the free grace of God to be received by faith and not works at all. Sometimes people get a little squirmy. So are you saying that we can just live any way we want? We can sin and it doesn't matter? Well, of course, Paul would say no. And we'll address that later in this book. But even verse 10, I think, hints at this. Verse 10 seems like, a, it seems like it's out of place, but actually I think it fits right in. What does the gospel produce? What fruit does the gospel produce in the life of someone who believes? Do you see it in verse 10? Let me read it to you. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Peter, James, John, they didn't add anything to the gospel. They simply asked to remember that Paul, Barnabas, and those with him would remember the poor. Notice the one thing Paul is asked to do. It's not, it's not, you know, Paul, would you please just just circumcise Titus? Just get these guys off our back, please. You know, Paul, would you just, would you just tell Titus to, to observe the Sabbath? You know, would you, Paul, would you just commit to immediately baptizing new converts? No. It's none of those things. Paul is asked to remember to care for the poor. Paul, of course, makes no objections to this. He is zealous to bring the gospel both in word and deed to the poor. So what's the fruit here of the gospel? It's love, isn't it? It's love. And, and, and it's fruit, right? It's, it's not something that external requirements can produce. It's fruit that comes from a heart that's changed. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, In Christ Jesus, neither uncircumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. You see, external demands of the law, whether it be circumcision or adherence to the law or observing days and months and years, etc., or observing the Sabbath or any of these things, these things cannot change our hearts. Only the liberating power of the gospel can. 
only the liberating power of the gospel. Rather than external restraints saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and remember, start doing this and this and this and this, these things can never produce change in our hearts. Only the gospel of freedom can do that. And when God produces this change in our hearts, when God produces this radical change in our hearts through the gospel, through responding to the gospel, then we are eager to do what pleases God from a changed heart. These apostles said to Paul, just remember the poor. Paul says, great, that's exactly what I wanted to do anyways. I was eager to do that. The gospel frees us to live a life of joyful gratitude and loving obedience to the unlimited grace of God, bearing fruit for his glory. So let me ask you, are you adding anything to the gospel? Adding your own Goodness, or your own, I'm not so bad, not as bad as some people, or I do certain things, and so I, I'm, I'm entreating myself to God. When we do that, we diminish the work of Christ. We minimize the work of Jesus rather than coming to God. We sang it earlier bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Right? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Notice the, the order of that. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And then I got up and I followed you. Right? It's when our hearts are free. By the gospel, we are fully accepted by God right now on the basis of Christ alone without adding a single thing to it. Our hearts are liberated. The chains fall off. And we get up on our feet and we follow him and we do the things that please him because we want to, not because we have to. Because we get to from a new heart. Only the grace of God can produce this kind of change. Only the gospel that Paul preached and Peter preached and John preached and James preached And Jesus preached the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are free in Christ based on what he has done without adding a single thing to it. This grace, this gospel which sets free is offered to you freely in Christ. And so I simply say, and and this is not, well, listen, I, I already got saved a long time ago. Man, I, I need, I prayed this morning with the worship team. I, I said, may your grace wash over us wave after wave. I don't know about you, but I forget about it. I, I'm rejoicing in it today, and tomorrow I get up, and I'm in a funk. And I don't feel so spiritual, and I don't feel so holy, and I'm wondering if God's on my side tomorrow because it's about me and my performance. And so, come and drink today. Come and drink every day of the grace of God 
lavished upon us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, undeserved, baffling, stunning, amazing grace. Uh, there, There are words in the English language fail to adequately describe how amazing your grace is. I pray that you just would open up the eyes of our understanding, that we would see our need for it and your rich provision in Christ and that you would wash over us as we consider the finished work of Jesus his, perf- his, his incarnation, his perfect life, his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, his ascension to the right hand, his outpouring of the Spirit, the promise of his second coming. We just say, wow, all of this, he and all that he has done and all that he promises to do is for me by simple faith. Grant us faith today to believe it and walk out of here with chains falling off, hearts free, ready to go forth and follow you for your glory alone in Jesus' name. Amen.